Welcome to McClatchy's Beyond the Bubble podcast on this exciting Thursday here in the capital of South Carolina, where we are now just two days away from the nation's first in the South primary. It's a special on-the-road episode this week. We're recording live from the state newsroom in Columbia, located, oh, about three miles from the Capitol building. Coming up, we're going to discuss the state of play in South Carolina. Did Tuesday's debate change anything? Can Joe Biden hold on to his small lead? And is the Bernie juggernaut as imposing here as it has been in Iowa, New Hampshire, and Nevada? Join us every week as we take you inside the race for the White House in a way only McClatchy's 30 newsrooms can by talking about how the election is playing out on the ground in the states that will matter. I'm Alex Rorty, a national political correspondent for McClatchy, and today I am thrilled to be joined by Jamie Self, a senior editor for politics and government at the state and someone who has very generously decided to come on the show despite surely being one of the busiest people in journalism at the moment. Jamie, welcome. Thank you for having me. And we're also happy to welcome back onto the show Mayan Schechter, the lead political and government reporter for the state, who the discerning listeners will remember helped us with our bonus episode earlier this week. She did so well that we wanted her back on as quickly as we could. Thanks for having me as well. Okay, so naturally there is much to discuss this week, but to start, let's add some brief context about why many Democrats think South Carolina is so important, even if it is the fourth state on the nominating calendar and is followed so closely by Super Tuesday. First, it's a state where the African-American population makes up a majority of the electorate. And second, the state's done a good job picking winners in recent primaries. Barack Obama's victory here in 2008 helped elevate him above Hillary Clinton once and for all in that race, while Clinton's victory here eight years later was proof that Bernie Sanders wasn't actually going to be the party's presidential nominee, at least not yet. Now, for the longest time in this primary, Joe Biden was supposed to win this state, thanks to a strong connection with black voters. But then Iowa happened, followed by New Hampshire, and while Nevada was better for the former vice president, he still hasn't won a contest in this primary and is in danger of falling far behind the front-running Sanders. So, Jamie... My question for you is, how much of a hit has Biden taken in the state he's called his firewall? Does he still have enough juice to win here? So it depends on which poll you're looking at in terms of how far ahead or Mm -hmm. how in trouble he is, right? Because Mm -hmm. uh, some of the polls in in the last week or so show him with a 20-point lead, 18-point lead, 15-point lead. Others show Sanders within striking distance of him. So I guess, you know, the way I've been describing it and thinking about it and hearing people talk about it is I think that Democrats are excited about the wide range of candidates that they have. I've heard people say that they're impressed with the, the the talent and the scope and also the very obvious differences between the candidates, right? There are clear distinctions in terms of their policies, and that's led to a robust debate on the policies in the party. You know, if you look at the voters who are undecided, they still have to make up their minds. And I think South Carolinians are looking at this wide range and saying, hey, you know what, we have a lot of choices. Now, to your question about Biden, he came in with the clear advantage, having been a part of the Obama administration. He's playing up his ties to the state, including eulogizing Fritz Holling's funeral. So, you know, I think he has deep ties here and that has helped him. His numbers have come down, obviously. Mm-hmm. It's kind of expected, though, right? Do you, think, do you think so? I mean, just that it was inevitable that he was never going to have a runaway victory in the state? I think because Sanders is building on the coalition that he started building in 2016, I think that it was inevitable that Sanders was going to come and continue building that, right, and cut into Biden's support. I don't think it's anything like four years ago when Hillary Clinton was pretty much declared the winner before the primary even started, which was a big complaint that a lot of Democrats had. So, you know, his numbers are coming down, but 
He still has a really strong base of support here. Mayon and Emma spent weeks talking to black voters about why they like Biden. They think he can beat Trump. They feel like they know him. You heard that rhetoric yesterday when Congressman Clyburn endorsed, right? Mm-hmm. We Big know Joe and, right. and he knows us, right? The, the highly sought after endorsement for Jim Clyburn. Mayan, I know you were working on that story for months. Uh, it, there was a, a feeling of inevitability that, that the congressman was gonna endorse Biden. It maybe took a little while mm-hmm. to, to get there. I, w- I wanna ask you, do you sense when you talk with Biden supporters, whether that is elected officials or even just his rank and file supporters in the state, that there was a little bit more anxiety or nervousness now than there was three or four months ago, or was the, the closest of this, of this race always expected? Yeah, so I, I think that there was always an expectation that this would be Biden's state to win given the fact, like Jamie said, that he's had this long relationship with black voters here and with politicians here and just the the state in, in general. The fact that the margin between Biden and Senator Sanders has gotten smaller has certainly freaked out and caused some severe worry for Biden's most prominent backers, particularly the fact that Biden did not spend a whole lot of time on the ground here. He spent a lot of time in Iowa. He spent a lot of time in New Hampshire. He spent a lot of time having to to raise money. So the fact that that margin shrunk over the last few months was, was causing a lot of concern because of that, because of the lack of money. A lot of voters here hadn't seen any Biden ads. They've been so consumed with seeing Steyer ads everywhere. And Steyer has certainly been a, a kind of a wild card for, for Biden. Mm-hmm. Or in and this I definitely race. want to ask you about Tom yeah. Steyer a little bit later because a fascinating campaign and candidate and mm-hmm. strategy that he's had. So I, I think for a lot of, of Biden supporters, the, the more prominent ones that you know we hear and, and talk to a lot because we're either at the state house or they're the ones calling or blowing up our phones, there has been some concern. But I do think that with yesterday's announcement that Congressman Clyburn is now the you know, the worst kept secret. But now that it's out there in the open that Congressman Clyburn is officially endorsing Biden, I think that has helped ease some concerns because what Clyburn can do, he's already cut ads for Biden. He's already on radio stations apparently today talking about his support for Biden. And he's got a a ground game here that really a lot of Democrats do not have. A lot of surrogates do not have. Uh, Clyburn has sort of an interesting kind of monopoly on portions of the state. So I, I think that for a lot of the folks who had concerns, this certainly is probably easing it a little bit more. Yeah, it's been interesting when you look at kind of the national picture for Joe Biden. Look, he took a real hit after Iowa and New Hampshire. I don't think there's any doubt about that. But he's taken a hit, but he hasn't collapsed. You know, his support has gone from, say, around 28 percent to around 18 percent now. It's not great for the, the former vice president. I mean, this has a, been a, all in all a very poor start to the, the campaign, but he hasn't collapsed. And when he, in theory, when he arrives in a state like South Carolina, which demographically favors him, he should be able to do OK. My question for you guys, do you think that let, let's just touch on the debate quickly. It was a very messy debate Tuesday night. It's not clear that anyone really benefited, but there was some sense from Biden supporters that he did well Tuesday night, at least, you know, maybe to stave off any any further bleeding from his campaign. What was your assessment and what are you hearing from people in South Carolina? Well, what I'm hearing from people in South Carolina is that he was very strong. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think one of the interesting takeaways is that while while Biden did go after Steyer, while Biden did go after some other people, no one really went after Biden. Nobody right. nobody really attacked him quite like what we saw in New Hampshire or maybe even parts of Nevada. I mean, nobody really went after him aggressively. And 
could not figure out is that a strategy of people just think that he's going to win the state so why get into it with him here in south carolina save that for super tuesday i'm not sure but his supporters they felt like it was the one of the, his stronger debate performances but also he really wasn't again he wasn't attacked on stage quite like we had seen before I'll add that, you know, Mayan and I talked about this while we were slacking messages to each other and watching the debate. The big hit against him from his opponents is that he's not progressive enough. And that's not a really hard-hitting message, right? You're not progressive enough. You're, you're old. You're reflective of a party that we no longer represent. It's a strong message for some voters, but it's not a very, I guess, dirty message. When you look at what Elizabeth Warren did coming right out of the gate, just taking a swipe at Michael Bloomberg, right? Mm-hmm. Her message was something that was more, I think, destructive for him, or at least intentionally destructive. It's just not the same kind of insult, right? On a rating scale of one to 10 of insults, you know, who got the worst insult of the debate? Probably Michael Bloomberg with that whole kill it quote. Those two words were really striking. So I think that allowed Biden to deliver his message to, you know, talk about Mother Emanuel. As Mayan noted in her story, he was the first one to mention the historic African-American church that was just blocks away from where they were debating. That, no doubt, resonated with people. And he was able to stay on message and kind of just say who he was. Mm -hmm. A couple of things I've noticed, particularly since New Hampshire, or even in the New Hampshire debate, Biden seems to have taken it upon himself to be more fiery in public, really try to elevate his own performance. There was a lot of criticism from Iowa, and I think Dan Balls of the Washington Post wrote this directly, that the the failure was with him as a candidate more than anything. And I, I personally, just when I watch Joe Biden now, I see a candidate who internalized that criticism and is trying to elevate his performance, not always with the best of results, but certainly more of an effort than we've seen previously. The other thing that I think sticks out to me about Joe Biden, he really makes this forceful case against gun violence which, as we know, has really risen in importance as an issue and is a sort of viscerally important issue for a lot of Democratic voters. And I feel like he's really kind of carved out something of a a, a reputation and brand and message on that in a way that I don't think the other candidates have. And so that, you know, a, a credit to him. Just very quickly, do we think it is still safe to say that Joe Biden is the favorite in South Carolina? You guys are looking at each other. Well, I mean, you know, if I could if I could uh, um, put myself in the brains of every Democratic voter, that would be great. And Mm -hmm. I can tell you the answer to that question. Mm -hmm. But what we have is, you know, the polls that we've that we've received. And yesterday, the Palmetto poll came out. And that's a poll that Clemson does. And Dave Woodard, who's a long time was a longtime GOP consultant in the state and, you know, professor there and pollster. I called him up and said, hey, Dave, you know, why is Biden so heavily favored in this poll? Does it have something to do with the number of, you know, older voters who were sampled? And so he talked to me about the methodology and and we talked about how older voters in South Carolina are the ones who are probably going to come out in mass on Saturday. Older voters vote. It's yep. one thing we know. Old people like to vote. <laughs> and, you know, in South Carolina, there's virtually no youth coalition. I mean, in 2016, according to the State Elections Commission, fewer than 10,000 people in the 18 to 24 age group came out to vote in that That's primary, right. wow. in the presidential primary. That's right. Incredible. So, I mean, you are looking at older African-American voters. You are looking at people who who like Biden, he told me every day that poll was in the field and was in the field for a while, the 17th through the 25th. Every day, Biden was the leading candidate in that poll. And he just said, hey, look, they know him, you know, they, they go way back. 
let's talk about a candidate who did receive a lot of criticism during Tuesday's debate, Bernie Sanders. It seemed like at long last the Democratic field recognized that he was the real frontrunner in this race, and they all sort of did their best to lodge different kinds of criticism at him. Basically, they threw the kitchen sink at him. It was almost every kind of criticism from his electability to the cost of his record to some of his past positions. It was almost as if they were probing to see where his vulnerabilities were because no one's really sure in this race how to separate him from his core base of supporters. That said, I want to talk to you guys about his campaign in South Carolina and his appeal here, because as we have mentioned already a couple of times on the show, South Carolina was a, a tough blow to his campaign in 2016. And his campaign says anyway that they have made a concerted effort to build a real operation here to reach out not just to Democrats generally, but in particular, I think young voters of color and all voters of color, where he famously, at least with all voters of color, he struggled in 2016. What is your sense? I mean, is, is, that, is that valid? Has he made a real effort? In South Carolina, do you notice the difference for him? He has made a difference between what happened in 2016 and now. Coming off of what Jamie was talking about, he was able to start a foundation here in, in 2016 and build on that in, mm-hmm. in, in 2020. Outside of, of Tom Steyer, Bernie Sanders' his name is always the first one that comes up when I ask voters, who is knocking on your doors? Who is mailing you things? Who is, you see them on, on on a sidewalk and handing you information about their candidate and they consistently will bring up Bernie Sanders. So they've been incredibly aggressive in their uh, door knocking and, and phone banking strategies. Uh, but it's not just that. I mean, also he's got more surrogates too here now on the ground. Not that he didn't have more prominent backers. He had a couple of lawmakers whose names come to mind, Representative Alexander from Florence and Terry Alexander from Florence and Representative Justin Bamberg from Bamberg. Two of his most vocal supporters in 2016 are back in 2020, but Bernie Sanders has also been able to to add on to that. I can't remember the number off the top of my head, but he's either got more or as equal of members on his campaign among the Legislative Black Caucus. Bernie Sanders was one of the first candidates out the gate to actually come to the State House last year and sit with the Legislative Black Caucus and get to know them and talk to them about the issues that they care about. So certainly, I, I think he has been able to really build off of what he brought here in 2016. He's going to be holding several rallies here this week, obviously. He's held many events here in South Carolina that have been particularly diverse. But one of the, obviously, the key takeaways of the uh, voters who show up, they're younger. And that's an area that Bernie Sanders has always done very well at, including in this race here. It's one of the areas that Joe Biden has struggled, as we've seen in polling, that Joe Biden typically brings in those older black voters versus Bernie Sanders, who's able to bring in that more college demographic. So also a big difference in the Sanders campaign from uh, four years ago and now, and I think it's lessons that he learned. In 2016, I was covering the race, and I remember calling around trying to find out you know, who has Sanders reached out to? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I looked at the AME church register and started calling pastors and, and asking them, did they reach out? And I remember hearing, well, a surrogate reached out, but it didn't really go anywhere, that kind of thing, right? I did not get a sense that there was a significant effort on the part of his campaign to reach out to these communities and these um, these influential faith leaders who could really make a difference for him. And then, of course, he got, you know, totally slaughtered. In got the, trounced. It's a technical <laughs> term, yes. Yeah. Another thing that he did is he imported volunteers to, uh-huh. you know, do canvassing. And as Adam wrote, 
and his story from talking to folks at Sanders Rally in North Charleston yesterday, they're finding people in their communities and they're and they're recruiting them there. So, you know, there's much more of an effort here to find supporters to help be ambassadors in their communities in South Carolina. So I think he's done that well too. And then also, you know, early on he came to Denmark and handed out water bottles to people following up on news that Sammy Fretwell with the state wrote about contaminated water issues there. So I think that kind of, you know, grassroots campaigning and a different type of focus on these communities has helped him this go round as well. It's amazing listening to both of you talk about his his effort in South Carolina because there's such a parallel I see to what happened in Nevada for him. I was in Las Vegas talking with some supporters of Sanders and the Sanders campaign itself. And they talked about how in 2016, they were you know, building the airplane as it was in flight, basically, didn't really know what they're doing. And I remember a senior Sanders advisor said directly in South Carolina, our staff was majority white and from out of state, and that the, they had reversed that this, this time around. And then in Nevada, you saw an incredible amount of success with a lot of Latino voters there and the Sanders campaign. Literally what you had just said, Mayan, that when you talk to people about who they have been reached out to the most, it was Sanders was first, second, and third, you know, that he has so many volunteers and enthusiasm and, and the organizational wherewithal to funnel that and to channel that energy, that that's been really important for them. And it was huge in, in Nevada, and that's why he wants such a commanding victory there. My question is, in South Carolina, obviously, it's not as much of a Latino electorate as it is a, an African-American electorate. In Nevada, he didn't have quite as much success with, with some black voters. And of course, older black voters were the most loyal of Hillary Clinton's constituencies in 2016. Do you still feel that skepticism from, from some of those voters when, when you're out on, on the trail? Well, I think especially now, there's mm-hmm. been a greater emphasis on what a Bernie Sanders-like candidate would mean if at the top of the ticket for down-ballot races. And so I, I think in the recent weeks, as those remarks have become much louder, as as more uh, surrogates of Joe Biden or the candidates themselves, Tom Steyer did it today, Joe Biden has done it now consistently on the campaign trail, talk about the impact that Bernie Sanders could have. It has started to ring some concerns among voters who question whether someone like Bernie Sanders could actually beat Donald Trump in November, although Bernie Sanders will then, you know, pivot to polling that shows that he has an edge over over Trump, just like some of the other candidates do or might have as well. I still think that Bernie Sanders supporters at the end of the day love Bernie Sanders. They're not leaving him. But what I have found that is interesting, and again, I, I keep bringing up Tom Steyer because he's just kind of like thrown this, this uh-huh. race in mm-hmm. flux a little bit. And I have this debate with other reporters because we consistently talk about how Tom Steyer has been able to maybe pull some support away from Joe Biden. I do still think that Tom Steyer has been able to pull some support, not not a huge amount, but away from Bernie Sanders. I mean, Tom Steyer is more in, in some ways. Take away the democratic socialism, you know, California billionaire sort of titles. They still have very similar sort of ideas about the way things should 
be, whether it's climate change or more money for HBCUs or criminal justice reform, whatever, they still have more similarities in some ways than, say, someone like Tom Steyer and Joe Biden do. Mm -hmm. And so when I was at Tom Steyer's event today, I spoke to a number of voters who said they were still making a decision between Bernie Sanders and Tom That's Steyer. Yeah, so it's not what you would expect at all. No, not at all. So I, I do think, though, at the end of the day, Bernie Sanders supporters here in South Carolina still really like him. I, I haven't gotten the feeling that they've just been leaving him as this sort of rhetoric about down ballot democratic socialism has has intensified. But with that being said, I think he still falls victim in some respects to the same things that Joe Biden has fallen victim to is that when you have so many candidates in the race, when you have someone like Tom Steyer, who's just outspending everybody here, it still pulls, I think, a little bit of support away. And it won't remain to be seen how that, you know, changes. I mean, that, that's Saturday. that's fascinating for a reporter. You know, look, Tom Steyer is not a candidate we have talked a lot about on this podcast, I think for pretty obvious reasons. This campaign is something of a quixotic effort from him. This is someone, um, you know, for McClatchy has a, a big presence in California. And I, and I know talking with some of our political reporters out there over the years, he's someone who has flirted with a Senate or gubernatorial run over and over. He formed Next Gen, which was a climate advocacy group. Then he pivoted to the Need to Impeach group. He was someone who really didn't seem to be able to settle on what it exactly he wanted to do in politics. Then he runs for president after initially saying that he's not. He's non-existent in Iowa and New Hampshire, and yet he left a mark in Nevada where he spent a considerable amount of money, and he seems poised to leave an even bigger mark on South Carolina. What do people make of his campaign in South Carolina? What do other Democrats make of it? And what, what do you guys see when you go to his rallies or, or you talk to some of his supporters? Well, it's been funny because most candidates have tried to completely ignore Tom Steyer's campaign. Like, nobody talked about him, really over the last year until recently. When, we, we didn't either on Yeah, the show, I mean, nobody so. really <laughs> factored nobody really factored him in. And actually, I remember when Tom Steyer brought his need to impeach door here in Columbia over a year and a half ago, and I was sent out to cover it, and I thought, okay, I'll never see this guy again. And then he has returned, and he's actually been on the ground quite more often than I thought he would. He has a really interesting campaign infrastructure here. He just has an interesting campaign in, in general. He has one of the largest staffs. I think they may be even past 100 at this point. I talk to voters all the time who tell me that they were volunteers, now they're staffers, or they were staffers, now they're volunteers. He has been able to spend millions of dollars on advertising in South Carolina, whether it's radio, TV, taking full-page ads out of college newspapers, investing in Black-owned media or other Black-owned businesses. I mean, he's been able to blanket the state, which, keep in mind, this is not a difficult state to blanket. It's a cheap media state, and it also takes, I don't know, an hour, two hours to get from, like, one end to the other. So it's not difficult my to really reach. really fast. <laughs> my, that was not my experience Sorry, yesterday. My I don't know what you're... <laughs> I don't know what hour. you're. I don't know what you're talking about. So I mean, so it's like a very easy state to get around in if, if you want to. Yes, if yes. if you're me, um, it's not Atlanta driving in my in my system still. No, I mean he's really been kind of a disruptor in this race for for these other candidates. So the the folks that I see that come to his. You know, he doesn't hold so much as rallies. He holds very, like, curated events, very small meet and greets. Um, you know, depending on where he goes, they could be primarily white 
older voters. Today, he was in Orangeburg, and those voters were exactly the kind of voting or demographics that that Joe Biden normally would have in his camp. Uh, These were older black voters who really love his message about climate, who really love his message about environmental justice, who, yes, even though Tom Steyer kind of seems to sort of get uneasy when the whole billionaire title is attached to him. They also see that as a positive because they see that as like an, an, an ability for him to further invest in the things that they want to see change in, in South Carolina. But it's also this accessibility factor that Tom Steyer has here that is like, I think, been really the big thing that has helped kind of cling some of the support in that He has come to the state so often, he will talk to voters about the things that they want to talk about, and voters feel like they also know him. I was talking to a voter today in Orangeburg who told me, you know, yeah, I can just like pick up the phone and call him. (laughs) And I think he meant the campaign, but I just thought, you know, that's like kind of a wild thing. Like you feel like this is your friend who's coming to you telling you like, you know, help me help you, and I can, you know, go to the to the White House. Slightly different than, say, Mike Bloomberg's approach. A little to, bit, yeah. To, to campaigning, yes. But the other interesting thing, and I have this debate again with reporters here about Tom Steyer's support, is a lot of Tom Steyer supporters that I've talked to, a lot of them don't necessarily always show up to vote. They aren't always politically involved. For some that I've talked to, this is the first time that they will have ever voted in a presidential election. So how solid of a support system is that here? You know, I think what happens on Saturday will be a really interesting test of all the resources that he's poured into the state and all the times he's visited this state. Because I've talked to, to other Democrats, particularly lawmakers, as I've been in and around the state house, and that's what one of the big things that they focused on if they're not Tom Steyer supporters is, okay, on Saturday, does all that money, like, did it turn out into anything? Or did he just spend millions of dollars and people just saw Joe Biden or Bernie Sanders' name and that's what they checked off? The biggest question I had coming into this race in South Carolina this week was whether or not Tom Steyer's support would survive contact with the campaign. Because, look, if the candidates hadn't been here before, they're going to be here now. There's going to be a saturation in terms of media, both earned and, and paid media. And, and my, my very strong suspicion was Steyer's support couldn't possibly hang on. You know, when I hear what you describe, though, I'm not so sure and anymore. And I'm also not as sure that it's a big problem for Joe Biden as it is maybe for Bernie Sanders, too, and if he's maybe boxing out Sanders for some support. So it is, you know, it, it's really when what has been a pretty strange race in a lot of ways nationally, just an, another odd twist that even after Iowa and New Hampshire, we, can't, we seem to be adding candidates to this race. As I said, Steyer was a little bit of a presence in Nevada, but maybe poised to play a much bigger role here. Yeah, I think one of the things that, and I can only really speak for myself here, that I've tried not to overlook is that, no, I don't necessarily think that Tom Steyer quite has a hold on South Carolina like Donald Trump had in in 2016. But I think one of the mistakes that I have tried not to make is to not take his candidacy seriously in the respect of how he's been able to communicate with voters. I mean, do I think necessarily on Saturday he's going to like come out on top and potentially surprise us all? I mean, I'm not sure. Nothing nothing has has come up in polls that to suggest that to me or anyone else. But I I don't want to overlook the potential impact that he could have on on some of these other candidates like Joe Biden, like Bernie Sanders. I think it would just be a mistake for us as reporters here to just overlook him simply because he's such a 
a wild card in this race. A little bit of an unconventional candidate. Yeah. Uh, just, just personally, too, when you watch him. And I, you know, my brother and sister-in-law, I think, after the debate on Tuesday, had the same impression of a lot of Americans, I'm guessing, like, wait, who is this guy? Because he hasn't really played a big role in the campaign. But again, he might be poised to play a big role here. Before we exit, yeah, I want to kind of talk to you big picture about something and, and want to get your perspective on this, especially, Jamie, as a veteran of this state. How do you feel like the primary has been different this time around? Have the candidates spent less time here? Have they spent less money? Have The, the messages obviously have been a little bit different, but just the, the nature of the campaign here, it feels like in the big picture that we've seen a shift in this primary, both in Iowa, New Hampshire, and nationally. What, but what's your sense here in South Carolina? Sure. So going back to something I said uh, earlier, the big difference is there are many more candidates running, not to, not to be obvious, but because of that, I think we have seen a lot of activity here. Of course, the impeachment efforts sort of cut back on a lot of activity. I think usually after the holidays, you know, things pick up significantly. And we had a couple weeks where we were just like, where is everybody? Well, we know, well, we know where they are, you know. But the other interesting thing, too, and, and I want to add something about Tom Steyer you know, there are candidates who fit sort of the traditional definition of great candidates, right? Cory Booker, Kamala Harris had big support. They were here very early and they were doing the kinds of things that you would expect a campaign to do. And Kamala was very smart about building support in the legislature and also getting involved in the education debate and talking to teachers and sort of timing her announcements, you know, in concert with big events that were happening in the state, the Teachers March. And we were sort of talking how smart that was, right? They're gone. <laughs> Been gone for months. <laughs> and then fact. Tom Steyer showed up and we're like, oh, he's going to start campaigning here now, you know, and mm-hmm. it was late. And then boom, he's picking up African-American support. And we're like, OK, what does this mean? We start thinking about the need to impeach tour. Oh, right. That uh, event that you covered last year and all of his efforts to be on TV have really paid off for him. And so I've been thinking about the campaign in terms of what it actually takes to run a presidential campaign. And I've been thinking about the shifting importance of South Carolina or even any early state in the process when the when the campaign seems to be shifting or the way to campaign seems to be shifting away from your traditional come in, meet people, build support, get your surrogates, you know, make the smart moves. It's moving away from that to, hey, do you have a lot of money? Can you run a lot of ads? Can you make people remember your name and your face? And so I just wonder, you know, four years from now, if we continue to see people like Steyer, who is a billionaire, even though he's not quite the billionaire that Michael Bloomberg is, you know, these guys come in, uh, or women, start running and spending millions and millions of dollars on the airwaves in states, how much is that going to diminish the importance of the the politics that voters traditionally have seen and have come to expect, right? Knocking on doors, mailers, holding events, etc. So that is one of the big shifts we've seen here already with Steyer, right? Bloomberg skipped South Carolina altogether. He's not on the ballot here. 
And, you know, obviously he has that figured into his calculus somehow. So I'm just interested to see what happens in 2024. Does the pendulum, you know, swing back in the other direction or does it just continue going in this in this motion? Right. We get Trump, we get Bloomberg, we get Steyer. I have a hunch it's the latter. I don't know how I, that makes me feel about democracy in, in general, but it does feel that way. And to your point about a candidates like Cory Booker and Kamala Harris, who in many ways, you know, they're senators, well-respected, seemingly good in person and at retail politics, who, who failed in their campaigns and failed early in their campaigns. And meanwhile, someone like unconventional, like Tom Steyer, is able to succeed. And it's just, what are people looking for in candidates now? And I just think they're looking in more and more unconventional places. Last question here, because, Brian, I feel like I have to ask you about this, because we have not mentioned Pete Buttigieg's, Amy Klobuchar's, or Elizabeth Warren's name yet on this podcast. Very unusual for this podcast. But all three who have struggled with non-white voters, particularly Klobuchar and, and, and Buttigieg, what is the expectation for their campaigns? Is there any thought that they could overperform right now? The answer could be no. I, it's okay. <laughs> like, no, they're doomed. You know, it's, fair it's, enough. It's complicated. I, I, I think, you know, Joe Biden spoke to another outlet here in South Carolina yesterday talking about how some of these candidates who aren't able to soak up a lot of African-American support should consider dropping out and, and coalescing that support around another candidate. So there is some in some camp who feel that that is the way to go. I mean, it was always going to be tough for candidates like Warren and Buttigieg and Klobuchar to really be able to compete among African-American voters like Joe Biden, like Bernie Sanders, again, who, yes, did not do well here in 2016, but did run here in 2016 and was known to many voters. So it was always going to be very hard. Pete Buttigieg was not really well known here in the state when he came in. Klobuchar certainly was not well known in the state. And to be honest, hasn't really spent a lot of time investing her time and resources in the state. She actually just recently hired staff like a week ahead of our primary to help, you know, reach out to reporters and talk to us. I, again, feels awfully similar to what I saw in Nevada. Yeah. From, from Amy Klobuchar. Very, yes. very similar. So it'll be interesting to see how everything shakes out on Saturday. I know between Klobuchar and, and Pete Buttigieg, I think their African-American support in one poll that I saw totaled 5%. Pretty good numbers for Buttigieg, really, you know, I mean, compared to other polls, some other sure, polls. Sure, ab yeah. absolutely, absolutely. But yeah, I mean, coming out of a state like South Carolina, especially where, again, everyone knows, like, this is a key state because it's a good test to see how candidates, if they're receptive with black voters, it's difficult when you're looking at these super Tuesday states, which are incredibly diverse states, their demographics are, are more diverse, how they're able to walk out of South Carolina and do well in states like North Carolina, uh, California, and then, you know, there's Georgia a couple weeks after. Well, hey, I want to thank you both so much for coming on the show. This was a really fascinating discussion and what is a fascinating state politically, which is going to be a very important contest on Saturday. So thank you so much. I know you're both also very busy. So, so thank you very much for taking the time out. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right, I want to thank our producer, Jeremy Sheeler, and our executive producer, Davin Coburn, and thank you, our listeners. Check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever podcast app you use. And if you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating or a review. We will talk to you next week after not only the South Carolina contest, but Super Tuesday, when more than one-third of delegates will be awarded. There will be a lot to talk about, so please tune in then. Talk to you next week.